Welcome to episode 26 of Disciples of Agony. I'm Brian, and I'm back! Yay, welcome back, Brian. I'm Stan. I'm Peyton. And today we're going to do a Warfare Weekend recap. So, to start things off, we have some news-type stuff. Stan, why don't you take that? Every convention that Privateer Press is at, there's always some rumors floating around. I think the biggest one that is going to get most people excited is that there's a dynamic update before the end of the year. Most likely before the holidays, obviously, since things are going to get pretty crazy. Yeah, I I think he said something like early December, so take that line of sight. Yeah, yeah, very, very soon. I'm excited, like, from... What what I had overheard was it's mostly buffs. Okay. Yes. Uh, from what I understand, it is touching two models in a downward balance, and then the rest of it is buffs. I believe uh, Hungerford calls it anti-buffs. Because that's the way he does. <laughs> it is so a- the two models that I had heard was the Clockatrice and Harvey. Did you guys hear anything different? That's what I heard as well. Yeah, I don't remember who I heard it from, but yes. There were, like, proposed directions for each of those. Peyton, do you recall exactly what the two Harvey splits were going to be? The last I heard, they were looking at either of these two changes. You can only martyr a model once per round, so you can't martyr the same kick monk six times. Nice. Or that martyrdom goes to D3 plus one damage, which tremendously cuts her martyrability down. I'm not like a, a menoth apologist at all, but I think both of those changes just straight up kill her. I, I'm all that same, like, oh, uh, I guess they become like the Serenia and something faction? I mean, they have other casters. There's other casters that are great, and they're sitting just under the Harby line or like not explored. Obviously, we saw Serenia was massively successful at WTC. Yeah. And mm-hmm. <clears throat> uh, when we did I-5, I, I think it was Sevi 1 that Cosma just like won every game with. Or maybe it was Kraos. I, I can't remember what the hell he played. I'd have to look up his lists. But yeah, he basically won listed and won every single game. Yeah, it happens. Uh, I don't know if it kills her. My thinking is if it's D3 plus 1, that gets too dangerous very quickly. Obviously, she needs to have a managed resource system. Like right now, she has her giant focus pool and then martyr, which is a totally separate thing. And obviously, the safety of her shield guards and the amount of healing she's able to do. Martyring, it doesn't feel like a real resource. Yes, you can strain it, you can push it, and then it it does matter. But most of the time, it doesn't feel like it's in limited supply, right? Mm -hmm. So the D3 plus one means at minimum you're taking two per martyr, right? Whereas like currently right now, we're rolling a three. At least most games I've played is very rare for her to take three damage off a single martyr. But when it happens, you see the Harvey player like, oh, shit. All right. I got to like really think about the next couple of these because they you roll one more of those and then things get bad. So at this D3 plus one, that's a pretty high percentage chance that she's going to be taking a three. Right. She ever rolls the three on that E3. It's almost a quarter of her life in one hit because she's an 18 box caster. Like I said, I'm not a sympathizer here. Like, I think something does <laughs> does need to happen to Harby. I would prefer it be in a way where she's not completely pushed out of the viability tier. 
one of the conversations that I had with somebody at Warfare Weekend was we were looking at like Makeda too and State Death and maybe making her spend focus to Martyr. That way she gets to do it on the same target as many times as she wants to. But there is a real resource that also puts a, a strain on her decision making. Like, oh, can I cast Crusader's Call or do I want to martyr a bunch? Or, you know, like she, she has to give something up. Where right now she gets everything she wants because they're separate resources. And in these two proposed nerfs, I think you limit martyr maybe too much. At least from, you know, gut reaction. I don't think she will be in competitive pairs if this happens. I think she will be dropped just below that. I don't think she will be garbage by any means, but the combination of the loss in power and the <clears throat> psychological reaction of something got worse, so let's not play it anymore, will cause her to drop out of a lot of pairs. Any other feelings from you guys on Harvey? If you had to choose, which direction would you take if you were the men-off player? Yeah. Uh, it depends on what matchups you're taking Harvey for. Probably once. Because yeah. it's so fucking hard to hit the kicky monks anyway. And they have dodge, and it's just, they're stupid. I hate them. They but, you know, apart. knowledge of the damned exists too, right? So, mm -hmm. <laughs> it's interesting. I do think, like, I, I'm not an experienced Menoth player, nor do I get a ton of practice into them. But when I do play into her, it feels like keeping that one annoying solo alive is more important than just kind of residual models or pickup models. You know during the game which model needs to live or absorb more attacks than the opponent plans for in order to like really screw up their turn. I guess I would live dangerously, honestly, but I don't know, like D3 plus one is, is like Peyton said, it's scary. Mm-hmm, indeed. Well, if that's all for Harby, let's move on to clocks. Sure thing. So after going back and re-watching the stream, the comment that Hungerford made about the nerf to clocks was that the nerf they are currently looking at is crit paralysis on the spray instead of straight, and stutter goes to once per round. And that's once again like Harvey, you one or the other. No, no, no. They originally, when I heard him talking, he had looked at one or the other, but mm -hmm. in his comments on a stream, he specifically said both of those is the same nerf. So, mm -hmm. like I said, when he was just wandering around, he had looked at either stutter goes to once per round or minus one armor and paralysis goes to crit, but he was commenting on the invite stream. He specifically said that it was the spray goes to crit paralysis and that the stutter would go to once per round, which I'm not 100% is too far because of how good bump is right now. Right. They're great. They, they still have stats that are a little bit above where you would expect them to be. And then they still have the auto repair. So I think that there's, I guess the auto repair matters less if you can stutter once, but. But like, even just the stuttering once means, well, heavy never trades like does a normal heavy trade into you which is something Grimkin could really struggle with like i i know in the pre-clock matchups abby 2 and karchev and all these casters that could really tune up the trades for heavies could really be problematic for Grimkin. and then the clocks were like no you, you just don't get to play that game anymore that combined with the new having an infantry theme force that functions and functions very very well i think allows for clocks to be nerfed down to an appropriate level and still have Grimkin be a very competitive faction. So I definitely want to hear Brian's thoughts because you're picking up Grimkin again and <laughs> trying to play with the new models, right? You may not be super duper experienced with them just yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Like I feel pretty good about playing into clocks 
as they are right now, even though I agree that something should happen to them. The design direction to take both of these nerfs in one sweep is kind of weird to me because you're saying I want to remove randomness. Like now it's going to be one stutter, right? So you know that I can send one heavy in. Mm -hmm. I can hope that I roll lucky and it doesn't get to stutter and I just kill it. Or I, I'm planning to send another heavy or whatever weapon master is to finish it off after the first stutter. But then you're saying for the crit paralysis, you want to go into the randomized direction. I, and I don't, but yes, that's what they're oh. suggesting. So I don't think it's they want to push into more randomness. I think it's they want to push into less focus efficiency. So right. Right, uh, you want a risk-reward, right? You want right. The, the clock to put something at risk. So the Clockatrice is by far the best heavy for buff, where you have access to Grave Ghouls, which makes a boosted crit paralysis gun uh, actually fairly reliable to get the per get the effect. But you just don't auto-get it, uh, which is at least where I see the nerf, like what the intent behind it was. Uh, they haven't specified that anywhere that I've found, but that's what I interpreted that as. Right. Personally, I, I do think that a paralysis spray just being automatic is far too good. I kind of thought that in the CID, but obviously you needed to experience things at first. Because right now you're saying, all right, you want to kill my caster? You're going to rely on this paralysis to get the caster. You'll probably pool all your resources in there. If I can position other things in your way, at least the odds of you paralyzing everything is far lower. Here's the thing about it to me from the idiot's perspective that's played clocks like five times. They already spend one to charge or assault if that's the what, what you're doing. So you get potentially two boosts at a chance at crit paralysis and we're at six. So unless you're hitting lower death things that are living. So Horde's Beast, you're probably not going to get it. And that's very rough because that's the whole point of them, is they control the board for you. I think it should be one or the other, because that makes more sense. It's not hitting it quite so hard, because otherwise, why do you take it? I'd argue it's still definitely in the conversation, if not the most efficient heavy in hordes at 13. As it is, yes. In, um, in the context of Grimkin, too, where like it still hits reasonably hard. 13, with, 13, 14? With, yeah, like I and it has the chain, right? Doesn't it like ignore shield on the tail? On the so, tail, on the fourteen, yeah. So I definitely there's, still a, there's a lot of strengths, right? It can still roadblock a lane. It still has flight and eyeless sight to put pressure on stuff, and it still has the ability to control. I do think that if they go this direction, though, the animus becomes pretty ass or like almost unusable because there's just not enough resources on the model to guarantee the animus. So I, I would I would maybe look at shifting the animus into something on it itself, like maybe um, rebalancing. Chain Attack actually had an interesting idea. I don't know if you listened to, I think it was the Spooktacular episode or whatever. They said just flip the animus and time stutter. So you have to cast an animus for time stutter and it always has the five inch reduction on speed. Have they made anime like that before, though, that are just yeah. completely unusable to casters? Yeah, arguably no, but yes. Are digging on the scare packs. They're okay. range six, I believe. So the caster can cast it on your agonizer. Sure. Uh, they can't cast it on themselves. Correct. Right. Uh, I thought that's what Stan meant is like on yourself, it's completely worthless. 
how I interpret it was uh, that since time stutters range self and the lock doesn't have stutter, the lock literally has no reason to ever cast it. But Grimkin has tons of other great anime, so mm-hmm. I wouldn't be opposed to it. Uh, and it does give interesting counterplay because it means hex mm-hmm. blast and purification all work on strong it. effects. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's definitely some pros in terms of creating a more fair model. Like, you want your model to do really cool things and reward, like, skillful play to get the most out of it. But you also want to leave the door open to some counterplay. And yeah. right now, the the Clockatrice requires a lot of setup in order to play into perfectly. And then there's, you... there's the question of, is the resource investment even worth it? Yeah, or you're just resigning yourself to taking two, maybe even three turns if you roll unlucky to kill it. And when you're facing down six plus heavies, um, that's difficult to dedicate that kind of resource to. The one thing that I never stood is why they're def 13. I could see that drop at 12 too. They yeah, were 12 there's, there's throughout no... CID, mm-hmm. and then they went up one. <laughs> it was just like, yeah, that's They have a silly. lot of numbers that feel like one mm-hmm. should be. The rat is, it's not absurdly high, but it's definitely a great rat to have. The Mm -hmm. the defense too, especially in the context of now we're seeing what grave ghouls do. There's also like, you can't even understate, there's so many strengths on the model. You've had the exalted thing happen to you before, right? Where like Dreamer can, the cockatrice can spray and it's just replacing phantasms by killing the phantasm and removing more model like that's like a super cool thing that nothing else can really do not without investing far more resources than that spray it's another tricky one i know a a lot of people dislike playing into the model it's definitely not a new player friendly model yeah like i played them maybe half a dozen times this weekend and i felt like i wasn't getting the best out of them by a long shot it does take skill to work Yeah, I I do think that if we as the opposing player have to take a risk to you don't want to have it stutter three times, right? You don't want to get unlucky with your columns or with your damage. Like we're taking a risk going in. There's positional things you can do to decrease that risk. But all in all, it's on you. And it's like they're giving you a bad choice. Wanderer can make the choice even worse. The uh, Grave Ghoul's you kind of want the Grimkin player to suffer on the same front and at least have to... Yeah, now that you mentioned it with the spray, like them relying on crits and stuff, I want you to sweat a little bit too, like if you're going to be playing a power piece. If you want everything, you have to take a risk. If you want to play it safe, that's fine, but I think it's a decent direction to go. I am just worried about the actual efficiency of the model and if it's if it can perform up to snuff on just the three fury alone with these changes i mean i think the goal is to drop it from like the king of nothing build with six clockatrices that can auto kill you because they paralyze the caster immediately and then all of them hit to something that's you only want to take one two maybe three but the thing is grimkin does only have three heavies so nerfing it too much just means the other two just you see more of those instead it's still going to be a valuable control piece, right? Like you have... Not if time starters drop to ones. That forces your opponent into awkward situations still, especially lists that are... Melee-centric. Yeah, you're still saying, come get this 13-point model that just did some work safely, and you're going to have to put in more points to Maybe? kill it. I don't know. I, mean, I, mean, I might just be playing them stupid, but 
Um, it always feels like if they get their spray off, they're even at ages, like even if they kill the model that they were going after, they're in range. They're not taking things for free. They're not doing it safely. They need to be within five inches of the enemy to really hamper the speed. Yes, they're strong by, when used by a good player, but um, I don't think they're nearly as powerful as people are bitching so about. We have explored their limits in Dark Menagerie and like determined that they're powerful. And I think now the shift to why the devs are looking at nerfing them is bump. The CID was for bump, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like, but but the the rate of adapting that theme force and actually pushing the limits of what those new models can do is only somewhat recent. And I think that's where the clock really, really uh, crosses the line. Yes. So in my experience, playing into the Dark Menagerie is largely fine, unless you're Infernals and then it's still a pain. Playing into Bump is where things go weird, because then you have countercharging monkeys, mm -hmm. which drop your map by two. Mm -hmm. And you have rerolls for days. Okay, so the Speed 5 Malady Men has to be within eight inches or so of wherever that monkey can get to. Counterpoint, the uh, monkey does not have to be information to declare a counter charge, nor does he have to be information to apply monkey bite. Okay, sure. But also, if you're going for rerolls, the grave ghoul's within like three inches of the clock. Because uh, it's seven inch command. Within five inches of the clock, with the front of the clock. So yeah, within three of the back of the base. Yeah. So, I mean, I understand. I understand it can be frustrating, but also, that's a lot of really tightly packed models all of a sudden. Mm -hmm. And Bump wants to be able to spread out so that the Nayslayers can get to where they want to go and not be clogged up by lanes. So I think this is just going to be a food for thought section. And yep. like the, we should move on. It's yep. been a you while. Can take You can take whatever we said and form your own opinion there. Um, obviously. I'm right. Everyone else is wrong. <laughs> Coming in with the hot take. Next All right. So the final bit of news relevant to us, actually, right? Actually, there, there's two points that I want to cross. First, we'll hit the positive, which is that the Terrorizer got his render spoiled. And with that, there was a post on Facebook where Hungerford essentially confirmed that it will be quote unquote dirt cheap and it will have Rush. So Rush is not left during their testing. So that means whatever the end result is of the Terrorizer, we are getting a cheaper Rush. Yes, and that opens up a ton of Disciples of Agony lists. Makes that theme much more enticing to build in. There's a strain of how good a caster has to be in order to really get the most out of that theme. And I, I think like we've, we've been seeing Makeda, we've been seeing some Xerxes too, we've been seeing some Resheth, but everything else has been pretty lackluster. Um, I do think that there is potential with Morgul 2, obviously. And Jalam. And Jalam, yeah. Actually, I forgot about Jalam. I've been playing a lot of Jalam Disciples Agony. But I do think this this Terrorizer thing is going to be huge, whether it's a free card or not. But the fact that it's an Agonizer, it does seem pretty likely that it might be a free card. Yes. And my feelings on, on that are actually, like, when you look at the free cards in Disciples of Agony, any non-scorn player is like, oh, you get a seven-point model, 
and a six point model for free, and then you can take another one, but not every list wants, now that we're playing a spread out scenarios, like the two agonizer thing is, is kind of niche to me. Two Krayos are also niche. It's you're trying to answer something specific. I, I take it in my Jalam list, but I don't think it's a, a common choice. And then your other remaining free cards are four point solos, which they're fine. The Willbreaker's fine. The uh, Tormentor's fine. But I think like putting the value in that list of having another six or seven point free option that does something different from the Kray and the Agonizer is really big. Yes. Well, and all of a sudden you're making some interesting choices with your free points. Yes. And you're dropping out a heavy for 15 points that doesn't get to do work until turn three or turn four for another model that is much cheaper. And as long as you play safe, can basically do the same thing. Yeah, well, and part... it's on a small base, and it's got dual attack, which means it probably has a Madden Rat higher than, like, three, I want to say, and nothing. Yeah, there's also, like, rumors of, like, a veteran leader and other... Th- I mean, yeah. who the heck knows, right? But with just Rush and the amount of attacks... Oh, he also said it gets stronger as it takes damage, or as it gets hurt, or whatever, I would in, the, s- in the teaser. Okay. Is there something like that currently? Blood tokens. Yeah, but that's after you kill things. No, no, no. Naresh oh, is... oh, Naresh or um, Vlad 2. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think it'd be more along the lines of Vlad 2. X health yeah. means X. Y health means Y. Z health means Z. Is there anything else you guys want to speculate on this model? Because obviously we need the card to say for sure and whether or not it's a free option to, to truly start messing with lists and saying who's going to rise to the top because of this model i mean i think i can safely say that i get to put the last of my titans back to the shelf i know right i am looking at a morgul 2 list right now and if the terrorizer is as advertised i think i swap out the battle boar for it so we'll talk about that list later if we have time yeah i think that that about wraps up what i want to say about the terrorizer i'm excited I'm excited that Rush is staying. Part of me hopes that they just change the Gladiator's animus. They won't because it's a character beast, meaning you can only take one, and that's... I mean, it's not like you'd ever take two Gladiators. They tend to not do that. Yeah, I don't know. We'll see. But yeah, he's going to be joining his buddies. Also, a Gladiator like is a battle box beast, right? I think you're right, but yes, moving on. And then finally, the last bit of news, which is quite possibly the most negative thing I've heard at the show... <laughs> it is this is not saying that the supreme guardian is going to get touched but i had heard if the devs are going to touch him they're going to remove arcane vortex which is completely devastating to me Oof, yeah that's rough to piggyback off that on saturday afternoon i played three games of sloan into level three against jvm all of which with hungerford staring me down the entire time and we chatted afterwards, and he said the dynamic update after the December one, the models they are looking at tweaking currently are Exalted and Sloan. Take it with a grain of salt, because none of that's been finalized or even close to it. Mm-hmm. But that is what was the result of my conversation after my games with Sloan into a dedicated Sloan drop, and sure. still having like a 45% or every game. God, Arcane Vortex being gone, would it would just be awful. It means Crick has a matchup in the scoring again. 
Sure, mm-hmm. but it just I, I can't I can't even imagine how many things that breaks for us. And now that our smaller control mitigation tools are gone, taking away the big one also is just saying like me dumb scorn, you smart, me die. Like <laughs> that's like the way I'm imagining it going. Yeah, it's the Supreme Guardian's been out what a year and a half, if that. That's a big price investment. I mean, I can understand like trying to stop six clocks from being bought, but like can only take two Supreme Guardians ever. And it's not like they cover entire units; they cover themselves. I don't think Arcane Vortex is something you should touch. I wouldn't disagree if they tapped something on the Supreme Guardian. Oh, go ahead, Payne. When talking to my locals and to other players, things that I would actually look at changing if devs for some reason are listening to this cast, the two that I have heard frequently is remove the a- the gun. The model does not have a gun. It should not shoot a gun. Or defensive strike because that's the most tilting rule in the model. Yeah. yeah, it's pretty rough, but I think, honestly, or even just make the gun a straight shot instead yeah. of AoE4, that would be better. Yeah, just put beacon on the gun. Oh, God. <laughs> remember, remember when... Oh, my God. Oh, my God. But yeah, the, the, gun, the gun feels beacon. the most superfluous rule on the model. What are you saying, Peyton? Uh, I said, I remember when they spoiled this and they said it was going to have a salt and beacon. I remember doing the math, and it had to be less, I think it had to be speed 3 for it to not be able to apply beacon far enough out that... um, Turtles could use it? Turtles could use it, because that's when it had assault and beacon. Yeah, that was, oh boy. (laughs) Happy happy fun times. Next, before we go on to Warfare Weekend, which is our main topic, (laughs) I wanted to talk about the Void Archon. So now the Void Archon is in the wild. I bought two of them at Warfare Weekend, assembled them, put one of them in my list, and it it's going to be another Clockatrice. It's a very impressive model that even even though you know its utility and you can see the sum of its parts, it's not quite understood until it's on the table. The way I was describing it, to, I, I can't remember who I was talking to at Warfare Weekend, but the, the Void Archon is like you start a game and you know the two casters are duking it out the void archon's like yeah but kruger where does your grandma live how many kids do you have where are they i'm gonna go get them too the void archon's just like a huge intimidator and Mm -hmm. definitely a piece that can pull your opponent in all sorts of directions that they don't want to go to as a person who ground out like 20 infernal games at warfare weekend the void archon is definitely the archon that terrifies me the most it can get super deep and do a ton of work in your backline models, which is problematic. Or it can play super cagey and just harass the flanks forever, which is nice. Yes. Especially in Disciples. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. that We will talk about that hopefully at the end. Have you guys had any experiences that you want to talk about? Or is my synopsis of the model correct? I think it's going to be a less egregious clockatrice. It's powerful, but easily thrown away on accident. It's not durable, but you're right. It is terrifying with Entropic Force and being able to port everywhere. It's legit scary as fuck, but it can die real quick. It echoes like there's a Lord of the Feast type factor where, you know, do you just the later this piece stays alive, the more devastating it is. There's the kind of clock factor where I'm going to go take something out and then either sit on the sides to threaten 
very important support models the next turn and force them to deal with it. Like it's got a lot of added value that isn't just from doing damage and killing models. I also think the conversation about single Void Archon power versus double Void Archon power is very interesting. In my experience, a single Void Archon is good, but the presence of a second Void Archon is exponentially better. Mm-hmm, yeah. And the, uh, I guess, from my perspective at least, I don't think it's going to go in many Exalted lists. I don't think so either. I actually, maybe later on in the show, if we talk about DOA, the Dark Shroud is way more impactful there than it would mm-hmm. be in a traditional Scorn list, especially if you want to play with minions models. Yep. There's also the fact that our uh, Taskmaster can provide it with some buffs or reposition, as well as I really think knockdown. I, I think that that's not a good point investment, but I think it's it's a no, not that. I think it's uh, a mistake. I think um, it was supposed to say living. Oh, I don't care. We're using uh-huh. it. I'm going to use the fuck out of it, but I, I think, think it's a mistake. <laughs> yeah. I think if it's your last free card, like I've built several lists with DOA right now that have double Void Archons and taking the two Taskmaster free card. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they just run around giving him Repo 3 all game until he gets a really juicy charge and then gives him plus two strength. Yeah, I'd like to get to that conversation. So let's go into Warfare Weekend real quick and say what happened. All right. So. Let's talk a little bit about the convention. This is my first year going. Both of you have been a couple of times now, or how many? I think this was my sixth or seventh year. What about this you, Ben? Fifth. Fifth. Okay. So what do you guys think of this year? Or do you want me to go first? It's my very first one. With no reference point. You go first. You okay. Fill in. Yeah. So I am relatively new to traveling around for stuff. Like, I've been to local qualifiers. I've been to lock and load which is like my one big one and then i have this so i i will say that i thought they did a great job organizing they had some difficulties happen in terms of their software this year for the lcq but they did a good job organizing i thought the hotel was pretty cool from like a architectural standpoint i wish that we were around more in st louis because i've never been before i i don't think uh I got the best taste of the city and I don't know how much more there is to do or if my read on it was what everybody thinks at the end. I didn't love St. Louis from just trying to go to this convention. I can say that pretty handedly. Sure. Um, Um, We're kind of on the weird outskirts of St. Louis. There's a lot to do there. I've been there a few times on my own, Um, but yeah, where we're at is not a very good location. But in terms of things, there were things to do at all mm-hmm. hours. There was stuff close by to eat and drink and whatever. And, you know, obviously you can take a small trip to other spots. And in terms of the gathering, like it felt a little more grand than Lock and Load was for me. Like, I feel like I got to see a lot of people that I talked to from the other coast in person mm-hmm. for the first time. Obviously, we got to meet for the first time. So that was really cool. Mm-hmm. I mean, being in the Midwest just allows for that, <laughs> honestly. Yeah. Yeah, my travel was fine. thought my flights were pretty good. Except for the power outages. Yeah, well, yeah there was some <laughs> weird stuff where our first, no, our second plane that we boarded was completely out. Like, there was no power in it, and it was just hot and disgusting. But obviously it powered on, and we flew just fine, and obviously they cleared it. But then the weird thing was the moment we got into the hotel, their power 
flickered out for a second too and uh i, I was like hmm i was probably to tell you to go home yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh i don't know like what else like what do you have any questions for me as far as what what you want to hear me say about the con Mm-mm. or is that kind of cover it? yeah I don't know about you, Payne, but it was a smaller War Machine crowd to me than usual, but larger overall because of all the other games. And with a few of them just starting up, it's going to, I think, be very massive soon. Probably not Gen Con levels, but somewhere between where it is now and Gen Con, (laughs) which is a good number. I think if Gonzo can maintain it and continue a forward path and find ways to continually grow the meta, which I know there were several hiccups this year, and he's wanting to change some things next year. Not sure I'm allowed to talk about them yet because he hasn't publicly disclosed them. But if he can do that, I think we can realistically say in 10 years we could be Adepticon level. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I don't even think it'll be that long. I think it'll be two years because, I mean, with Crisis Protocol Judgment, Judgment is moving their, like, world champion to this con. Judgment also, they cleared house at this thing. Yeah. I really like the game, and I definitely expect it to do well. But like, they sold out of a lot of stuff on day one, and they had so many people entering events that literally just picked up the models, and that was just really cool to see for a new growing game. Yes. One of my favorite things about the con is this is the con every year that I can guarantee that I can get a insanely disproportionate amount of games just because there are people willing to play at all hours of the day at this event. Like I said, I was there Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and I ended the weekend at 24 games, which my usual like week to week, I usually get three to four games a week. So this was like a month and a half worth of games. Yeah. And that's just my favorite thing is just being able to push through and find new lists. And you see a ton of the WTC players innovating and bringing new lists. If you look at McWaters and JVM, both of them are bringing new lists that we really haven't seen before in the open meta yet. Something that really interests me every year at Warfare. I thought that the the schedule of having the like the qualified people not really give a shit for the first day made it really interesting in terms of like you can scrub out of the LCQ and then get like really high quality pickup games or scrambles and depending on how much you want to push for your games played there was stuff to do you know up till two in the morning or later if you went ahead and organized it yourself like me personally i had i think 10 games but the big draw for me at this thing was like i could socialize and kind of meet more people in the community than i I had a chance to do at lock and load because of lock and load scheduling being very tight and not quite as open and as far as warfare weekend felt also just due to like the geographic differences between the two events this event allows more people to just because it's more central it allows more people from more different areas to show up and meet basically all of usa team one and two showed up there mm-hmm. um, i had planned to show up and just getting to meet all of them is super cool and to your point on the scrambles that was actually a anomaly for this year most years they have a champions event that is highly highly Mm -hmm. advertised and highly pushed by the tos just so that the that doesn't happen because usually day one scrambles are for your more casual players and so this was my experience in my first two scrambles of the weekend on friday 
You know what I'd love to see going into next year is almost like a King of Coins style event for like everybody at the Invitational gets a coin. And if someone can like take a game off them in a scramble, they can redeem it for something. That would be really cool. I'd be super into that. Because I mean, they, they don't really have anything to do on the first day, provided the schedule stays the same uh, next right. year. So I, I think something like that could be really interesting. Uh, so I think next year they're going to push champions a little bit more and try it because like this year it wasn't even originally on schedule and then like five weeks out they added it on the schedule but didn't really advertise it anywhere so like four people showed up for champions. Yeah, there and, seemed to be a lot of that. And instead they just dropped it and went to scrambles and so like my first four scrambles for the weekend were four casual players versus four people that are in the invite and it feels super weird for that. They definitely needed more scrambles like more more people ready to run those because i tried to get in them and it was like because i was in the lcq i would kind of come over check what the status was see if i want to keep playing or drop it would be like oh come back in two-ish hours and it's like okay well uh, i try they're still not ready now i'm starving I come back yeah. after an hour and I still can't get in. So like th that was kind of, I wouldn't say frustrating because like the amount of pickup games were still great, but I, I did desperately want to enter a scramble and was not able to. Definitely saw that a little bit. But I mean, maybe they can automate it somehow, like have like a sign up system and the first people that get texted to come in will get the slot like restaurants do but anyway whatever i have more scrambles please next year i want to play mm -hmm. <laughs> all right so in your lcq run were there any games that you want to specifically talk about i want to talk about my first game just because i don't get a chance to play scorn mirrors very often i think about them a lot but there's not a ton of scorn in my meta and when they do show up it's definitely someone's like second or third army and they just want to bring morgul one with a bunch of gargs or some some shit like that you know so <laughs> sign up for lcq super stoked no nerves at all i think i i'm i'm past the nerve stage at least in terms of pairings and starting the game i get jason watt round one and i'm like okay cool you know, I only know reputation. Obviously, he did great at uh, WTC and went six and zero. And I knew that I was going to be playing someone that probably has more experience in the mirror than I do. So we get to the table. I look at his two lists. I brought Zaltu with two Supremes, a Void Archon, and uh, a support style battle group of Shaman, Brute, Agonizer, Kreia, two max units. I was not able to fit a soul ward in because I really wanted the vessel for my three point flex slot. And that thing, I'm trying to think if there's anything unique about the list. That's about it. Like the Void Archon, I just, I wanted to try it. I got it at the show specifically and built my list for it specifically because I wanted to see what it does for him. And my pair is Jalam with three Archidons and Disciples of Agony. I got a Black Hide Rassler. Two Kreyas, because I, I need this list to answer certain things gun-wise that Zaltu cannot. And two Min Pain Givers, two Master Tormentors. Oh, the Roadhogs. That's the big deal. So I have three Archidons, two Roadhogs, and then the Rassler for my heavies. I get to the table, Watt has Zaltu with a Mammoth and three Max units and one Supreme. 
It's a list I've tried out. Definitely really like the Mammoth with him still, although I, I question whether in the Infernal game state that's what you want. But anywho, it's a good list. His second list was that Resheth list we talked about that he brought to WTC. And seeing that in his pair kind of made me shit myself because I did not want to get that list. It was going to be very miserable for Zal, but I thought I could probably work Jalam through that. And I feel my experience level with Jalam is pretty good. And then we kind of get into a little bit of chicken, it seems like, because he told me he was like Zal 2 would crush Jalam and then Rasheth would crush Zal 2. And then on my end, Jalam was probably favorable into Rasheth. So we end up dropping Zal mm-hmm. too. I think I chose correctly, or or we we synced up in a way where it, it was probably the least bad matchup for the both of us. So this game, I I feel proud of my game plan, but the amount of time it took for me to get there and how shaken I was by some small unoptimized movements really put me back to like embarrassing levels of clock. So I win the roll-off. I decide to go first. My game plan here is that I want to get up the board to be in range to contest. I want him to feat first. I want to give him... I want to make sure I get vengeance. I want to give him enough immortals so that it's juicy and that I can start getting tokens to boost with on Zal. And once he feats, I want to send a good number of immortals into his stuff, start boosting, get some work done back and then counterfeit and then on the left side i position a supreme with vision and the crea behind it to encroach on his mammoth try to keep his mammoth under control because i out threaded in melee and hopefully i won't take too much chip going in the left side i think i played pretty well but i threw the void archon into a pretty bad situation i I should have directed more souls onto it is what my big blunder was there because it, it charged in and then i had to teleport with no souls and no ability to boost because i wanted to kill his ua or at least force a couple of immortals to die from it and then have his army need to deal with it in the back line doing something relevant but it it turned to just kind of totally blunder and throw itself away and then on the right side my big mistake was leaving two models out of command and that caused me to lose more immortals than i wanted to and those weren't free strikes i could take you know those weren't souls that i could get some very big issues from misplacement. So all in all, I didn't really get to enact my game plan. Honestly, the best highlight of the game was he cleared most of the right side unit, and I hadn't been rolling any tough checks because it was like, they just didn't feel relevant with how I was kind of low on clock and I didn't really want to take them. But he killed everything in that unit except for the leader. And I'm like, all right, screw it. I'm going to roll a, <laughs> a tough check to make sure you don't get points for this unit. And, and I got it. So that was the big hero play for the game, honestly. I learned a lot, though, because having the theory of how to play into a mirror match and actually playing into said mirror match is, is very different, especially under the constraints of time. Uh, what, what do you guys think of that game plan with the two lists? Would you have done anything different? Uh, not mispositioned. <clears throat> right. Well, yeah, not <laughs> but, but in terms of the the winning the role, making the correct choice, I think he did putting, it. Putting 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's kind of what he said, too. It was a very nice guy. Like, we got to chat before the game started while they were finishing up pairings and sending lists around and then had a chat after the game. Uh, he also was in agreement that, like, the game plan was good. It was just I I needed to move faster and I needed to not make that big of a misplay early with the positioning because then I think it would have been a game. I also wanted to get more value out of the Void Archon than I did. Ultimately, if I had given it more resources, that would have given me less chances to have bad luck. Yeah, that, that was a hard one, because it's hard to say whether there were nerves there or, yeah. if, or if I was just unsure of my plan being correct because of inexperience with that matchup. Sure. Do you want to do it alternating, or do you want to just do your entire... Or that's it for you, right? That's all your LCQ you dropped after no, that? No, 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 no. I, I played Crucible Guard game next. That one also kind of weird, because the guy had a, a McKay list and then a Gearheart list. The Gearheart list had Crucible Guard infantry in it, so I was like, cool, I'm not dropping Zal, so we're going to play Jalam, and we'll see what he drops. Felt pretty good about Jalam into either one of his lists. But uh, it's it's going to make the episode pretty long if I talk about everything that happened this game. But there was an unfortunate circumstance where my clock wasn't paused during an assassination attempt. Yeah, and right, yeah. I, being relatively new to the competitive scene, I just saw that I was missing over four minutes of clock, and I just said I need to go and kill this guy right now instead of calling the judge back or instead of trying to argue or you know start any additional dialogue like i just hit the the pressure hit of the time situation and how intense the circumstances for the assassination were going to be that i just hit go and i ended up clocking out before i could do everything i wanted to do I had two gunshots from Jalam, which rolled extremely well. I had two Roadhog sprays. And then if I had the time, there were some tricky things that I could have done with uh, the Archidons to maybe get one in. I don't know for sure because I didn't have the time to go in and measure everything because of the pressure of the situation. Uh, that game, I don't know. It Jalam seems pretty okay into Gearheart is is my assessment there. I, I played into him later on in the event. And then my third game, it was against the local. He also brought Crucible Guard. I dropped Jalam into Sevestro, and then I just outright tabled him. And at that, at that point, I decided to drop and try to get into a scramble, which didn't work out, so then I went to go get food. That Sevestro game, there's not really a lot that I can say because my opponent forgot to put... Is it Transmutation that gives the Steelhead's Pathfinder or whatever? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, he had deployed them behind the lake and then forgot to put Transmutation on them. And... That's rough. Yeah, it, it was rough. It was it was super rough. In my head, I'm thinking, like, this game's not over. Like, that's that sucks, but there's stuff that can be done... But to add insult to injury, my dice were disgusting. Like I had an Archidon roll nothing less than 10 damage on every single attack on his battle engine. You look at averages like an an Archidon should just barely be able to kill or or just barely come short of killing a Railless at POW 20, I believe. It's a coin flip. Um, Yeah, like it it seems like... 36 damage on the dot if you roll average damage every time. 
So it's like a 50-50 if you do it or not. Hold on one moment. I'm just going to add Quinn to the call. It's one of those games that it's hard to talk about too much because my opponent made a big mistake. I could tell that he tilted from it. But then to add insult to injury, like I just had my Bloodrunners ambush. They killed a Dragon's Breath rocket and buried themselves into those poor uh, steelheads that were stuck behind terrain. The railless blew up. The second rail list blew up the following turn. Things got real bad real fast, and the the hot dice didn't help. So it was just one of those games where it's like, hey, man, you want to go get some food and talk about it? And we replayed it later. That's it for my LCQ experience. So if you guys want to talk about either uh, Peyton's Invitational Run or any memorable games, feel free. I've talked a lot. Yeah, I, I'll talk about my blunder of a game. In the invite, I play Bubba Dalton round one. I have Zadaroth and Sloan as my list pair. Bubba is playing Rasheth, the wins list that I qualified with, and he's pairing that with Zal 2 with Double Supreme Guardian. I don't remember the battle group. I saw Double Supreme Guardian and was like, eh, okay. Uh, it was on Invasion, so I thought he was going to drop Rasheth because it's a very, very strong scenario for Rasheth. He, that is what happens. Uh, we end up playing Zadaroth and Rasheth. I lose the die roll to go first, which puts me on the immediate back foot. To add insult to injury, I make three large blunders this game from lack of inexperience. One, uh, I just deployed a hermit and put him on the wrong side of the house after seeing where my opponent's turtles were going to be. Secondly, I threw away on turn two. I could get a charge with my soul stalker into the Eridus Sentinel, but I couldn't get the Desolator Spray, so I left them on like 12 boxes. If I had got the Death Letter Spray, it wouldn't have worth it. But since I couldn't, I probably should have just held off for another turn. And the last thing that really sealed my fate was I took a counter charge on a Slinger with my Tormentor. And then afterwards, he proxy-based a Turtle and showed that one Turtle could get two Tormentors. And so he feeded, and I lost three heavies in one turn. Um, and I just couldn't come back from that. Yeah. But looking back on the game, if I am more cautious i think i have a realistic game into Rashef, but it is a difficult matchup because of his ability to reach far and kill some solos and his ability to trivially remove your heavies the table in the center was really open there was a very small forest on his side of the of uh the rectangle zone in this matchup i want buildings my caster is a ghost walk caster and i can throw it out several times and since I'm a road to war caster, my heavies are really good at hiding behind buildings, inching out to one side and charging through them. And it lets me put real pressure on the turtles early. But we're on a slower scenario, and he got the roll to go first, and the table was fairly open in the center, which let him, lets him really push Rasheth and the battle engines. So there was that, and then I just I don't have the experience because I'm the only real competitive scoring player in my meta, and I'm currently on Inferno, so... I can right, dodge so it a lot. I haven't been able to play it on table. That was a similar problem to me, not not having mirror matchup experience. Just to keep everybody in the loops, Quinn just popped into the call. I, I am here. <laughs> hey, Quinn. I've just been waiting for an opportunity to jump in. No uh, worries. And then Brian also has to go somewhat soon, so we're going to let him talk about his games real quick, and then we'll wrap up uh, with the remaining three. All right, Brian, what you got? Or do you have any questions about Peyton's game or anything to add before you go? No. What games excited you? 
I played in the LCQ too. I made it to round three before facing Watt, so that was cool. I played a handful of Bump in the Night games. They were they all ended the same. I died um, <laughs> or clocked, but they were interesting and have me intrigued. I played a Dreamer game that was just a rollover because of the CID stuff. It was he took a block of deer with Lucant. That was cool. <laughs> Gross. Um, yeah, it was yeah fun. I played the Makeda 3 DOA list that I've been kind of, or the old one, the old Imperial Warhost list just moved over to DOA. It doesn't work, um, so that's fun. But my rounds in LCQ were actually interesting. I played round one against Gareth 2, and I played the DOA list, and he moved a Harpy too close to Molokarn and did not move Gareth far enough away from the Harpy. So, uh... He died. And then my second game was Zaltu versus Iona. And that match has gotten less scary. And basically, I was able to score a point on bottom of... Yeah, one second. Uh, bottom of two, and he wasn't able to score anything. Um, and there was a burning cloud on his side of the flag. So he had a bunch of single infantry over there and just wasn't going to run them through the cloud. I ended up winning on scenario i think we ended up saying but he was low on clock too and then game three was again against jason watt i played doa against his zal too i think he one listed it and i misplayed a couple of things but i was surprisingly in the game until i ran out of time i had two seconds left when i flipped it back over to him and uh <laughs> yeah so i was surprised at how well it ended up working for the most part even with my dumbass mistakes and his dice rolling absolute fire it took him six immortals to take a siege animatrix from full the dead with no vengeance triggers no anything he just charged them in and got it done and i was well, that like sounds okay. about average yeah that was uh it's 50 it was literally a coin flip and he did it in six so <laughs> that was cool quinn and i played a game it was uh zaltu versus wanderer what did you think of that game i think that was actually probably one of the more interesting ones I played. It <laughs> so there was that turn where Hakar failed to kill a Kravit that was <laughs> jamming up my immortal <laughs> vessel. Yeah. So to back up a second, Zal got a bunch of souls. I was like, oh, if I can just free up my immortal vessel, he can run over here and just Sunder Spirit that entire unit of Nayslayers. So I sent Hakar in to kill this Kravit. Fails to do it. it just whiffs every four. Um, and yeah. then. I was like, all right, well, I'll just walk the Immortal Vessel away. He needs to roll a boosted 14 to kill it with the free strike, and then he rolls it. And I was like, all right. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to rethink my plan. I think probably pretty even-ish. I have to play it more, I think. Yeah. It's really I think if I didn't run out of time, like what I, oh yeah, I did clock flat out. I mean, it took me five minutes just to get through all the maintenance bullshit that was going right. on. Wander's just so weird, and that's the—I think that's yeah. the only game I played against him in probably like ever, maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He—he's absolutely on my watch list. Like him and him and Old Witch are ones that I want to play into bump wise. He's more um, dangerous. But yeah, Grimkin wise in general, like those two, I need to get far more practice into. Whereas like Dreamer, I don't really give a shit anymore. Yeah, I played the 2-1-2 two, two version of the list. I was very unhappy with how it played. 
But anyway, back to our game. Yeah, like, I felt like if I could have executed the plan, I might have been able to take off both Supreme Guardians, even with all the shit that you took from me. And then it was going to be like, all right, well, now I just got to play Mop Up. But I was slow. <laughs> yeah, it, I yeah, I just have to play more. But it feels pretty execution-heavy uh, yes. on both sides. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Wanderer went man mode with his POW 11 and, like, just walked up towards Saul at one point, and it was funny. But then he was stuck there, and that was sad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just kept, like, being in, like, random threshers just because he was there. <laughs> Not that I was trying to kill him, really, but just kept being in threshers, and, like, I kept missing. He keeps, like, dodging forward. All right. Yeah. I mean, not? you're POW 11, so I don't think I really care if you just stand there, so... <laughs> Yeah, that is the shit part about him. He has no hit buffs, no damage buffs, and he's got oh. flare. Yeah, great. <laughs> yeah, flare and beacon. Woo! <laughs> but yeah, so it was an interesting game. That was actually probably the most interesting game out of the Wander or out of the Grimkin games I played. Peyton and I played a couple, and I played one against Chandler, and they were all like, "I'm learning this, and they know their list better, so I'm just burning myself down." That was the thing. So that was my Warfare weekend. I had a lot of fun with a bunch of people. Oh, I demoed uh, Crisis Protocol and Judgment, and yay. I actually bought Crisis Protocol. Did the, you like uh, both, I take it? Yeah, they were fun. Um, I like Judgment more, but Crisis Protocol is... It's got some very interesting tactics in the game I was playing against my dad. Uh, I the, the right tactic was to back away to the corner of the board because hmm. that was going to be how I won. <laughs> but yeah it was just like that's not what you expect but it's it's a lot of counting dice you roll fistfuls of dice but it's counting and i think it's going to be great for my daughter to learn so and she's eight so i think it'll be great for her to like kind of start playing miniature games mm -hmm. for realsies because she's kind of been interested in war machine but you know with all the stats and all the stuff it's it's hard for her to pick up on but this is a little bit simpler Quick segue, just because we're talking about your daughter. So the door prize at the event for everybody that got the VIG pass yeah. was a meat thresher. Um, <laughs> yes. I, I personally did not plan to fly home with a huge box of anything because I, I packed very light. It was just a weekend for me. I only brought a backpack and my case for my minis. So at some point I needed tape and I traded away the meat thresher for some duct tape to Brian so that his daughter can play with the meat, meat thresher in the future. I got two of them. Yep. <laughs> I feel like Stan got the better end of that deal there. Yeah, probably. I mean, that tape made sure all my models made it home safe. So uh, yay tape. I didn't have a, a extra large base rail for the Void Archon that I bought at the show. So I taped that sucker down inside the case, and then I used the rest to kind of make sure my door didn't slide off in the overhead bin. You know, like well you worth do. it. Mm-hmm. All right. So, pleasure talking with you again, Quinn. Likewise. And Stan. And see you on Peyton. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it was it was really great to have all of us meet up at the show. Yeah, that was very cool. To, definitely yeah. one of the coolest moments for me at the con. It was a pleasure meeting you all. I hope to see you again soon-ish. Hopefully before next one, but less than one year old means difficulty. Definitely. Totally. So I'm Pook on Discord. I'm not on very often, so if you want to talk to me, you have to at me. And I'll see you guys later. Later. All right, see ya. Cool. So um, before you go into your games real quick, mm -hmm. was this your first Warfare weekend? 
Yes, it was. What did you think of the show overall? What were the things you liked about it? Maybe some things you didn't that they can improve next year. In general, how was travel to the show? Just kind of give us a quick rundown before we go into your games. Yeah, I don't know. I had a really great time. I've been to a few cons at this point. This one just seemed really solid. It seemed well run. Scrambles very well organized, which is nice because... I'm pretty socially awkward, and just walking up to random strangers for games can be difficult sometimes. So that was really nice to just have like a somewhat facilitated format to get games in. And I was really chill. It's cool seeing all the people that I know from this side of the country and getting to see people from the other side of the country that I haven't seen before, I uh, haven't met before. Cool. That's about how I felt. It was my first one. Like you'll probably listen to the recording later and mm-hmm. hear, hear my thoughts. But yeah, I, I had a blast as well. So yeah. I have three games I want to talk about. Uh, the first one was in a scramble. Uh, and the reason I want to talk about it is because I got to play Zal 2 versus Gareth 2, piloted by I'm gonna mispronounce his name even though I asked how to pronounce it. Uh, Rayon. Rayon. <laughs> A strong rep player from, I think, Florida. From Uh, Bunting's meta, yep. Yeah, so I got to play that matchup. It was on Bunkers. And this is interesting to me because it went okay. I think it was a fun game, but it was also miserable at the same time. You know, that kind of game. (laughs) He wins the world to go first. It's on Bunkers. Uh, He just runs up really aggressively, and he's playing the Gareth 2 with three battle engines and three lights and some stuff. And I'm looking at it, and it's like, you're really far up the board. I can get my Supremes up to the 20-inch line if I feet and be in a really aggressive board position where you have to either, like, try to do work into me or just back off. And backing off on bunkers is, like, a death sentence. So, and it's just a scramble, so I'm just going to, like, try it out, even though feeding on turn one is, like, usually an awful, awful, awful idea was all two. So I go for it, and it actually seems to work out. Because he commit something to the middle of the board, not give up like three or four points my turn two. So we just like grind it out on his turn three, I guess. Let me think about it. And his turn, it was, it was an important scoring turn anyway. He has to, one of my immortals ends up toughing like three or four times. And when he needs to clear the flag to get solo on it to keep up in uh, scenario. So he ends up having to commit a trident when he would rather not commit a trident. And that lets me get Supreme onto it and just murder it. Yeah, and then from there, it was just like he picks up both my Supremes on the turn after that. And we just grind it out. And because I was able to get a scenario lead early, I'm able to hang on to that through the entire game. And we grind it out and to the point where he has, I think he has Gareth, the AFG, because of course he still has the AFG. I think a Siren... And a couple other random odds and ends when I'm down to Zaltu, one immortal, and a shaman. <laughs> so, and he ends up clocking out, I think, on turn seven, six or seven. With, with me still up, I think, like, two points on scenario. So, yeah, still, like, really rough game. Uh, still really close. Had to get lucky in a few points. But I think it might be playable, question mark? <laughs> I don't know. Like, yeah, I I don't want to steal your thunder here, but that was that was a little bit of a theme for me at the event, where yeah. because I had 
great opponents and we took the time to talk about stuff and pause the clock. Like I want to make sure I got absolute value out of every single game I got there. The theme was like a lot of the matchups that I thought were really difficult. If you kind of work out the minutia of it, I felt pretty good about Sevestro was one that I, I thought mm-hmm. I actually feel all right. Droppings all into that. Mm-hmm. Um, at least the standard list that is being played. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, and it's just to my momentarily tangent on to uh, Silvestro. Uh, my partner has been playing a lot of Crucible Guards, so I've gotten a lot of practice against that, and that feels okay. Like, especially the variants that Brandon Owens is playing right now that have two Retaliators and no Heavies, uh, other than a Suppressor. No Tauros, I guess, is what I mean to say. That list doesn't really threaten Zal Supremes under feet which pretty drastically changes the dynamic of that matchup. Anyway. Um, yeah, go on. <laughs> so, yeah, and thinking about it, I think if you win the role to go first in the Zal 2 versus Gareth 2 matchup, I think you probably want to go first so you can feet on turn 2 and not be super pushed in. Mm-hmm. And especially, like, but if you go second, it might be, especially, uh, depending on the scenario, depending on the table, it might be... Well, it's a tool you can use, I guess, is being able to feat turn one. And especially if you're not playing against like really high level players, some people just don't know how to deal with that. And they like kind of give you more than they should on that feat turn. So, or trying to do work into your feat turn, I guess. So, something to think about, I guess, for people who are puzzling over that matchup, like I know I am. Did uh, Rian mention how bad the Scorn players in his meta were? Uh, he didn't. <laughs> no. <laughs> ah, damn it. If only we could have snuck a bunting burn in here. <laughs> All right. And then, so I played, I scrubbed out round two of the Invitational. And so I'll talk about those games real quick. Round one, I played into Max Lamon, who is a Menoth player, I think also out of Florida. I think he won Crucible anyway. This was on Invasion. Oh, I guess I should talk about my pair really, really quick. Um, so I'm playing Zoltu. Uh, two Supremes, two Units of Mortals, and my battle group is an Agonizer, Kreia, Shaman, and Brute. And then I have Makeda 3, also an Exalted, and she is playing also two Supremes, two Units of Immortals. Her battle group is an Ar- uh, two Archidons and an Agonizer. The reason I'm running double Exalted is I was looking at my bracket, and I do want to bring Zal 2, and I know that Zal 2 doesn't have a ton of things that I'm worried about playing him into. The big ones that I was worried about playing him into were Harvey, because I knew I was playing a Harvey play round one. Grimkin, just because there was a possibility round two I would get Chris Dancox, who was playing Grimkin. So I wanted to bring something that would kind of, not necessarily like, these are going to be my drops. This is going to be my list that answers Menoth and Grimkin. Um, but just that I wanted to have more well-rounded options. And I thought Makeda 3 with the Grievous Wounds and just bringing a bunch of Exalted who don't care about being paralyzed would give me more well-rounded pair into those matchups specifically. Yeah, so uh, round one, playing against Harvey. The Snare's Invasion, which makes me want to drop Makeda because Invasion for Zal is awful. Playing Zal into Harvey on Invasion would be awful just because nothing's going to happen the entire game. We're just going to like stand in the middle of the table with nothing dying 
So I want to drop Harvey, but there's a really massive forest. It's basically two of the giant broken egg forests mashed together in the middle of the table. And I'm worried about basically Makeda getting oppressed by Covenant that I can't ever get to. <laughs> Just because it can be hiding behind that forest, saying no spells, and Makeda can't ever like be in the port position where she wants to be. Because she has to worry about getting caught by like the Avatar's gaze, or just getting bopped by some heavies coming from out of downtown with like Pathfinder from the objective and Crusader's call. So I grit my teeth and drop Zaltu into Harvey, and sure enough, we just stand in the middle of the table and nothing dies for seven turns, and then I and then I kill the objective and win on the bottom of seven. <laughs> Is pretty much how that went down, I guess. He was able to kill my Supremes with his heavies, and then my solos killed his heavies, because that's just how that goes, I guess. Yeah, so that was a really brutal, rough game. I think we both had, like, sub one minute on the clock at the end of the game. But turn six, I'm able to get my Arc Node within range, just shove him through the forest, get within range of the objective, and start casting Sunder Spirits onto it, and don't end up killing it. So he's just like, on his turn seven, he isn't able to score anything still. Uh, like, he hasn't been able to the whole game and just like tries to make it as hard as possible for Zal to get beat on the objective. But he's able to get Craft Talisman from the Shaman and get onto it and finish it off. And that's <laughs> the only thing that happened the entire game. <laughs> do not that recommend. sound miserable. Yeah. yeah. Do not recommend playing that matchup <laughs> if you can avoid it. Yeah. yeah. Do you guys have any thoughts or questions about that before I move on to my second round? I, I mean, that is exactly how I imagined it would be. <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> it yep. sounds about right. And it's, yeah. it's definitely miserable. Yeah. Do not recommend, especially on Invasion, where just <laughs> you can't score because nothing dies. So, like, <laughs> yeah. All right. So, round two, I get. The Scorn Mirror against Alex Cosma, and his pair is Makeda 3 and Exalted in a very similar list of mine. He just is running a support battle group instead of Archidons, and he's running Jalam in DOA uh, with a bunch of Archidons and uh, Roadhogs and a Rassler. Just because both Zal and Makeda can be casually accurate, and because I know Alex and know that his Makeda 3 list, he just drops into everything if he possibly can. I'm super not expecting Jalam. Looking at it, and probably the right thing to do would have been to drop Makeda 3 and just go for it, because we're playing the same list, and both like whose thermonuclear bomb gets to go off first is basically what the matchup comes down to. But I'm super not confident in my ability to out Makeda 3 Alex, because I know he's put a lot of reps into that list, and I have not put a lot of reps into my list. So I chicken out and go for comfort and play Zal 2. This is on King of the Hill, so which is the two rectangles touching the sides and the circle in the middle with a flag in the middle. He wins the go first, which he definitely wants. I definitely didn't want to give him, but here we are. And pushes up aggressively. I push up aggressively. He kind of dances, like, so everything in both lists runs 11 inches. I'm actually able to get a slightly more advantageous board position just because he doesn't threaten that far and I start farther up on the table. So I'm actually, at this point, more in the zones than he is. So he just tows a couple guys into all the zones where I can't really get a whole lot without giving away way too much. 
So I just take a conservative play. I keep my Supremes outside of 11 of his Supremes. And I'm able to kill his objective and kill the like one or two guys who he's put into his left-hand zone. So I'm able to score that, score the objective, keep my guys safe, put my feet up. Um, because even just regular mortals are pretty scary to my uh, non-feet turn Supremes under Makeda's insight. So score two points, keep my important things safe, put my feet up, and see what he does. And he just basically doesn't make any attacks this turn, and just jams me up. Basically puts enough stuff in the way and puts everything under like tough bubbles where I can't really make reliable forward progress at all. So I'm looking at it. And I'm thinking, I think I can maybe score three this turn and just end it now because after, now that my feet's gone, I have to be like, my Supremes will just explode as soon as he puts anything into them. And I am a lot less able to kill his Supremes with anything other than my Supremes and my, like, Akar and Ancestral and stuff like that. Because Power 13, swinging at Armor 21 because he's got two Agonizers in his list. So Supremes are always Armor 21 against Melee. It's going to be. An uphill battle, so I want to end this game right now if I can. The problem is that I have to score the left zone again that I had scored the turn previous, and I need to clear the flag in the center of the table, and I need to clear that circle in the middle of the table. So I make a couple of mistakes this turn. The really big one is that I activate one of my units of immortals that needs to clear the center zone before I kill the novitiate that's providing a tough bubble to like that entire unit, the entire unit that's on that side of the table. So I activate, make a bunch of attacks, hit everything, crack armor and everything, but he still makes like four tough rolls, which is not ideal because I I should have killed that novitiate before doing that because I definitely had the capability of doing that with just Zol getting craft talisman and Sunder spiriting it. Which is what I do immediately afterwards, when it's too late. <laughs> Even still, I'm able to like finagle my Supreme pretty jammed up now, because I don't kill the things that I expect to kill. He just threshers through like five of my guys, like six of his guys, <laughs> and just like kills everything. I'm able to like finagle getting an AG to kill like a Kreia, and get Hakar to kill an Agonizer, and... All I've got to do now to clear both the middle zone and the middle flag is have my Supreme kill like four or five immortals that are right in front of him. These guys are under a different tough bubble. This one I can't get to. It would require like an immortal, one of my immortals surviving a free strike and a defensive strike to kill this guy. So there's nothing I can do about this. I'm just going to roll well. (laughs) So he thrushes through them all. They make a ton of tough checks, of course. And there's like three guys still alive at the end of this <laughs> Supreme's activation. All right, this is fine. I managed to clear the flag. So I just need this other side of the table to go well. I've got some, a couple of immortals who can make attacks on um, these immortals that are still in the, in the center zone. And then I need to clear a path for my brute to kill some stuff in the left zone. And then I'll still be able to score five. So I go for it. He, of course, makes a ton of tough checks again (laughs) and there's still like a guy or two left still alive in the center zone and then i I end up mucking up my own charge lane so i can't get the brute where it needs to be and not able to clear the left zone either so you know this this whole grand plan that i've spent like 40 minutes trying to figure out how this is going to work i score one point instead of the three that i wanted to 
which is a bummer. So he goes into his next turn. This is McKay's three, McKay three's feet turn, of course. And he just like pretty much wipes me, which is what I expect. But as soon as he starts killing stuff, every soul is going on to Zaltu. Every single one. He probably made a mistake in killing as much stuff as he did. He probably should have just killed my important stuff and be like, well, what are you going to do without Supremes? And with, like, a handful of immortals left. But in any case, he kills, like, almost everything. All the souls go on to Zal, and then he positions Makeda 3 where she's behind. Both of his Supremes are still alive. This positions her, blocks off line of sight, and is like, alright, go. <laughs> what can you do? But I've actually killed his entire battle group, except for one agonizer that's out of his control now. So even though he's camping, like, six, he can't transfer. And I've got, like, 20 souls. <laughs> so... Zal gets powered up from a novitiate, charges a Supreme in front of him, beats it down, and then starts zapping Makeda 3 with Sunder Spirits through two Arcane Vortexes <laughs> that are on the Supreme that's still alive. And just zaps her and zaps her, uh, gets down to the last four Fury that I have. You know, cast Sunder Spirit, boost to hit, hits. Uh, he's got two boxes left, dice off six, needs roll an eight, roll a seven. <laughs> and that was the end of my invitational run because I had about 10 seconds left and uh, zero camps all in front of Makeda 3 and Supreme. So, um, yeah, yeah. That, that game looks super, super tense. And to make things worse or better, that was when the emergence of the meme lord happened. Oh, at yeah. The event. <laughs> So uh, for context, for the people that weren't there, there was a, a wedding going on at the hotel or like the people were staying at the hotel for this wedding and some absolutely plastered dude in a suit makes his way down to the tournament hall. Probably has no idea what we're doing. Mm -hmm. His pants are undone. He kind of starts looking over the games. It doesn't seem like he's doing anything too bad at least immediately. He wanders over to the judge's table, starts scarfing down the, the judge's chips. <laughs> uh, there's some great pictures of him in the Scorn Memes Facebook, if any of you guys want to check it out. But uh, he did somewhat... I, don't, I wouldn't say, like, interfere with your game. Like, he didn't touch anything, but... To be honest, I, I was so in the zone, because I had, in that assassination run, I had about two and a half minutes to pull it off. So I did. I was so in the zone, I didn't even notice him until the game was over. <laughs> so Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because he was, he was commenting on your game. Like, I remember at one point, I think you passed the clock over, and he's like, no, man, no, don't give up. Or, or so, <laughs> I don't know, he was just, like, super plastered, had no idea what was going on. Um, yeah, that was... A hilarious moment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> From watching the game, it it's it sounds exactly like what it looked like. And I kind of thought the same thing of oh, Cosma gave you too much to the point where like now you have a chance to do something. Yeah. Uh you got as close as you could have possibly gotten to, yep. to taking it. I didn't carefully watch the turns before that though. Yeah, it was an ambitious play. Uh, definitely. Um, but I think if I had executed correctly and if Dice had cooperated a bit more, or one or the other of those things, really, um, I think it could have pulled it off. It looked like it could have gone either way. Um, the, definitely leaving the tough bubbles up is important yeah. to recognize, because if you had the opportunity to get to them, that's the thing about tough, right? Like, Right. Sometimes it matters, and sometimes it 
it doesn't at all. So yeah, sometimes it absolutely breaks the game because right. it just happens more than you could mathematically equate to. Yep. I mean, Alex is a great guy. He was on our, our i5 team uh, the, for the i5 team tournament. And, you know, if I have to suffer through that with someone, like, he's a great guy to go through that with. So to- Totally. Yeah, I, I, I love hanging out with Alex and look forward to bumping into him at events in the future. Oof. Yeah. It was funny that, like, we all scorn mirrored. Like, that's... Yeah. That was, like, the theme of the event because your, your round two, the other two scorn players left in the event also had to play a mirror because Bubba and Watt had to play a game. Yeah, which also I'm, seemed to get go pretty close. Yeah, as as I didn't, I was obviously not able to watch that game, but as I heard, that had the opposite ridiculous, like the super low odds assassination did go through when he rolls like box cards with ten seconds left or something. So that assassination run, um, basically the last activation he had was a turtle, mm-hmm. and he had to roll four shots and roll seven for damage every time and dissolve. He rolled four shots. Damage roll 1 goes 7, damage roll 2 goes 7, damage roll 3 is Snake Eyes, damage roll 4 is Boxcars. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he rolled exactly average, so, like, that seems I, fine. I very briefly talked to Bubba, like, we didn't have a in-depth conversation, but he said, like, he had a turn to plan to actually complete the ending of the game, and he was more so planning to assassinate the following turn, not necessarily that turn, it just happened to happen that turn. But yeah, yeah I, I don't know the full details about the game. But yeah, crazy. Because I, I played Watt round one. Brian played Watt round three. Then they played a mirror. Then you and Alex played a mirror. And mm-hmm. then the scorn rapidly disappeared from the tournament. Right. <laughs> Actually, we're, we should just wrap it up here. Yeah. It's pretty, right. been a pretty long cast, but people deserve it. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, sorry, we're ending kind of abruptly, but there's a lot to talk about at this event. Probably even more to talk about than we can fit in this recording. With that, please check us out on Patreon. All of your support really does a lot to keep us motivated, uh, continue to challenge ourselves, as well as just keep the logistics of things going. Like oftentimes you need to replace equipment and backups and microphones and all sorts of things. But mostly it's just a feel good thing to know that people like listening. Please continue to use the line of sight calendar. I I am now actively using it to track local events as well as kind of chart my roadmap for next year because this last year I didn't have a tool like that. I kind of had to figure it out and talk to people and get word of mouth on events. And that now I have something far more accessible to use. And I think it's a great tool, so we should continue to support it. And thanks to those guys for hosting us as well. Uh, you can reach us at our Facebook page, which is probably the most responsive and easy to have a conversation through. That's at Disciples of Agony. Uh, please feel free to send us an email. We answer those very quickly. And that's disciplesofagony at gmail.com. If you want to be ignored, you can go to our Twitter. And of course, on Discord, I am Type2. I'm Pierre Priest. And I am Pix, P-Y-Q-Z. Yeah, feel free to chat with any of us. I'm sure if you go into the Scorn section or even general on either the Line of Sight Discord uh, or the, I don't even, what's the official name of the other one? 
like the war, war, whatever, war, war machine. machine. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Feel free to message any one of us or, you know, shoot the shit. Let us know what you think. If you got any comments about this episode or anything you want to hear in the future. And with that, we're going to sign off. I'm Stan. I'm Peyton. I'm Quinn. And we'll see you again next time. We now consecrate the bond of obedience. Assume the position. Thank you, sir. May I have another? Thank you, sir. May I have another? Thank you, sir. May I have another?